my pleasure to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show. Our mission is to serve you and empower you to make better financial decisions in your life. Today, you know the saying, the grass is always greener on the other side of the street? Well, some people are making their grass a whole lot greener. I'm going to tell you how and why, why this is something going on in America. I want to tell you what I did in my own life. Also, have you been hearing friends say they're not going to put their money in the stock market until it feels safe to do so? They pulled money out and they're on the sidelines. Well, that is a common occurrence when people get nervous, when they get anxious. I'm going to tell you why I am not a believer in market timing and investments and the way I handle uncertain or scary times. So during the Super Bowl, because football is my life, I was quite distressed at how the NFL messed up the field and players were slipping and sliding like they were playing ice hockey instead of football. It was because the NFL wanted the field to look absolutely perfect on television and they hurt the quality of the game by having made the field look so perfect, it wasn't for the players. And the players, after the game, kept talking about how they kept trying different cleats to be able to get any traction on the field. But a lot of sports events, fields are painted. They're actually spray-painted to make them look beautiful. And before that game started, it looked gorgeous and very common in sports. And it's led to a lot of people now painting their lawns. I'm not kidding. Painting their lawns. You ever seen it? I've seen it. And this is something I was not aware of that people are now doing in areas where water's gotten really expensive. So they're not doing it just being obsessive. They're doing it because they are restricted where they live because of water shortages, because of various droughts or they're doing it because their water bill is so expensive. And that brings me to what I did, what my wife and I did. At our house, our water bills were expensive. So we no longer have any green grass. We have uh, drought-resistant plants that we planted, and we have areas where we've got rocks and things like that, and we have no lawn at all anymore. The benefit is we now have a much more affordable water bill. And I've talked in the past about how in Nevada, people are paid by the local water authority to remove a lawn and go back to desertscape. And they will pay you cash to do it because we face in so many jurisdictions, so many states, we face a shortage of reliable water supply. And this is really important for agriculture because almost all water used is for irrigation for agriculture. And particularly in the Mountain West, as areas have populated more and more, and people come from elsewhere in the country where they expect to be able to have uh, this just gorgeous lawn, the reality is those lawns and the water it takes to, to keep them beautiful actually subtracts from water that's available for the agriculture 
that we need to have affordable food and reliable supplies of food in the country. Now, agriculture itself is going through a lot of changes with these farms I've talked about that are warehouse farms, where the amount of water you need is a tiny, tiny fraction of what you need in a traditional farmer's field. And you don't have to worry about cold temperatures, hot temperatures, droughts, floods, whatever. You can now grow in these warehouses and they are becoming a meaningful factor in big segments of agriculture in the United States. But the water supply thing is real. I mean, for me, it was all about the bill. And I was stunned how much our water bill was every month that no longer is an issue for us. And there are a number of reasons why people do this. What people have done very heavily where our home is, is people put in artificial grass. And every time I ever mention artificial grass, we got all kinds of Clark stinks about that. So I'm just going to leave it at that, that a lot of my neighbors have, instead of doing what we did, going to uh, drought-resistant plants and rocks, have been putting in the artificial grass. The problem is that you would want to go one step further and paint like yard lines on there. So it looks like a football field. But would that be great? <laughs> that would be so fun to have something marked as a football field. When we used to live in a house, Krista, that we had that big yard, mm -hmm. both my brothers wanted us to put in two golf holes there, you know, where we had that rolling meadow and they wanted us to, you know, put a pin in and put in a tee and all that and do a hole each direction. And Did you tell them they could pay for it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. We'll start with this from Mitchell in Mississippi. I just purchased a used vehicle, a Lexus NX 300 and learned after the fact that it takes premium gas only. My wife has a similar make and model that doesn't have this restriction. There seems to be varying opinions on what gas to actually use. Do you have any suggestions for managing fuel costs for a premium-only engine? So, Mitchell, the reason that Lexus says premium fuel only almost certainly is so that it meets its rated horsepower. You are about 99% A-OK -okay putting regular fuel in that Lexus. And this is something that has come up over the years because vehicles have to, like uh, Lexus's Toyota's premium brand, that model has to be able to operate at various octane levels and markets all over the world. And the vehicle has a computer-controlled system that will adjust to the level of the octane you put in it. So if you run that on regular you're not going to, it may be a tiny fraction slower, zero to 60, but the vehicle should be absolutely fine. And if you read online, you will see confirmation of this. Now, vehicles built before, which yours vehicle is not, built before 1996 that call for premium fuel almost certainly need that premium fuel. And there are a very, very, very tiny number of high-performance vehicles built more recently that actually do need the premium fuel. But other than those two things, those two exceptions, your Lexus should be absolutely fine running on regular. And by the way, if you put regular in it and you hear engine knocking, you know that I don't know what I'm talking about 
and you need to go buy the premium fuel. That's not going to happen. Pablo in Virginia says, in a previous episode, you recommended using home equity for major repairs or additions to our homes. Would you consider installing solar panels through this means a reasonable use? That would be a reasonable use of using home equity. thing I would say about putting... Uh, uh, using home equity, though, for solar panels, depends how quickly you can pay off the home equity loan or line. If it's going to take you a substantial number of years to pay it off, you definitely don't want a home equity line of credit because that's a floating rate that can change every single month. A home equity loan, on the other hand, particularly for five-year money, is a good spot to look in the marketplace to pay for those solar panels, if you're comfortable paying off those panels in 60 months. And from Mitch in Ohio, Clark, I'm puzzled by your frequent advice to set up a separate account for ACH payments since those accounts always come with overdraft fees. Instead, isn't it safer and more frugal to use a prepaid debit card? For example, a Bluebird card can be set up online for free, less effort than a new bank account, funded with an ACH transfer, and has zero overdraft fees. You know, it's funny, Bluebird just hangs out there, doesn't it? Bluebird was an attempt to set up a quasi-modern, ultra-low-cost, branchless bank by a joint venture of American Express and Walmart. And Bluebird just keeps hanging out there. It's never established the market share that I think American Express and Walmart hope for, but it has a lot of really good features to it. And your example, Mitch, of using a Bluebird account as a way of paying things where you don't put your main money at risk is a perfectly valid idea. And I like that suggestion. Now, on the thing about overdraft, a lot of accounts no longer have ridiculous overdraft fees. In fact, the amount of money that banks are generally collecting in overdraft fees way, way, way down because there's been so much shaming of the banks for taking something that costs them less, uh, like 20, 40 cents, whatever, and charging people $36 for it, that a lot of financial institutions have reduced or eliminated their reliance on overdraft fees. And from Manoj in Illinois, I am anticipating a $7,500 EV tax credit as it is a credit, should I set my W-4 with my employer to ensure I have at least this amount due? That is a very interesting perspective. So you have to owe tax in order to receive a credit. There are credits that are known as refundable credits and the, the, those that are not. So it's really an issue of your tax liability. If you're earning a decent amount of money at a wage, you're going to owe tax. When a credit like that does not flow to the taxpayer is if you didn't owe any income tax in the year that you're seeking a tax credit for. There are some, again, that are called refundable tax credits. There are those that are not. So I know of no reason why you would have to manipulate withholding in a year that you're receiving an electric vehicle credit because it's based on you having tax liability, not how much or how little you had withheld over the course of a year. And the good news is we have plenty of time 
for a CPA who does tax or an enrolled <laughs> agent to tell me I'm an idiot and I don't know what I'm talking about and that Menage is right and that you should manipulate your withholdings for the credit. But my understanding is that is not necessary. Uh, coming ahead, a lot of people are pivoting what they're doing with money they have, pulling it out of investments because they fear what's going on right now in the world. And I'm going to tell you why that's not how my mind works and why I don't recommend that you play the investment game that way. Straight ahead. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. If I had a dollar for every time somebody told me, well, I'm going to put my money back in the stock market when it's safe again. If I had a dollar for every time somebody told me that, gosh, I'd be rich. But actually... All you need to do to create financial comfort for yourself, and dare I say, be wealthy or rich, is methodically, over time, put money in to a variety of investments and do it like I do, like the turtle. Just keep doing it. Set schedule over and over again, known as dollar cost averaging. But that's not how... Most of us are wired. People zig, then they zag, and they go like a herd. So right now, people with all the economic uncertainty, inflation, we go into a recession, what's going to happen with corporate profits, all that, people are rotating out of stocks, and they're saying, hey, look, I can earn 4 or 5% on my savings right now with no risk. I'm going to do that. And then when it's safe to invest again, then I will invest. Okay, so every time this happens, what happens? You miss the recovery and the run-up. Because, yeah, we feel as humans loss more than we appreciate gain. And if you are close to retirement and in retirement, you got to be careful how much of your money is exposed. But the younger you are, putting money into CDs or savings accounts or whatever, you're missing the long-term play. Because if you look over the longer term, even taking into account bad times to invest, listen to this from Dow Jones, the people who own Barron's and the Wall Street Journal. Okay, so if somebody had money in the stock market, diversified in 1999, they put it in 
or had money in just before the dot bomb era. If you're not of an age that you knew what that was, there was this frenzy of speculative investing in the 90s in these new dot coms known ultimately as the dot bombs. All these story stocks of people who who said, hey, you know, this is going to be great. We're going to deliver this or deliver that or whatever. Just look up Webvan if you want to know what I'm talking about. And you'll see a company that lost billions of investors' money and then did a belly flop and went bust. And there's one after another after another like that. And so somebody went in in 99 and said, hey, this is what I got to do. I got to be in all these dot bombs. That then were the dot coms. They were going to go all the way to the stratosphere. Even somebody who did that, but stayed in through the bust and then stayed in through the banking scandals that led to the Great Recession, rode things all the way down to the bottom in 2009. If they still stayed in, they now, according to Dow Jones research, would have had a 314% return over the last 23 years, 314% return on their money. So there's this tendency whenever things feel iffy or scary that we bail, we, we move to the sidelines. And right now it's really tempting with money market funds maybe earning 4.5% and some credit unions paying 5% on CDs and general savings accounts not at one of the giant monster mega banks may be earning four point something percent that like, okay, I'm earning on my money and I feel safe there. And then someday when it feels safe to be investing again, then I'll do it. Okay. So that runs completely contrary to how I think you got to do what, what feels right to you. But let me tell you long-term, the way you make money steady as you go, well diversified. Steady as you go, well diversified. That means for most of us, that might be in a Roth IRA. It might be in a 401k where you put in every pay period or once a month, you're putting in a set amount of money spread apart. It could be in a, you know, a target retirement fund. It could be in a variety of index funds. So you own different pieces of many different parts of the investing community. And yes, you'll have short-term downs but you'll have long-term ups. You look at pretty much any investment cycle through the modern era going back, I guess, the 1800s, and you'll see that time in the market is your friend, not trying to time the market. The longer you're in, the longer you play, the longer you ride, because if you believe in the fundamentals of the free market, of what entrepreneurs do, of what business owners do, but people who risk it all to make it happen. Over time, people create new ideas, new opportunities, new inventions that come to market. And that's why societies over time become wealthier. But who does wealth ultimately flow to? Owners. And what are you when you own little pieces of thousands of companies through index funds or ETFs or target retirement funds or whatever? You are an owner of a small amount of many, many different things. And so over time, you create wealth as economies grow and you have your piece of the pie. 
But if you try to time when it's safe to be in or when it's best to get out, that is an impossible thing. That is a mathematical impossibility to pull off because when a market starts to recover, whenever that is, each cycle, the greatest gains happen in very few trading days very early. So I am the turtle. I'm steady as you go. And that's an ultimate ticket to wealth. You live on less than what you make, you invest, you diversify, and you create wealth. That's why I'm obsessed with Roth IRAs. That's why I'm obsessed with you contributing to a plan that is offered to you where you work to create that long-term financial security and ultimately financial independence. Krista? This is from Jim in South Carolina. Does Clark have any recommendations on patient consent forms that we're required to sign prior to seeing doctors for general appointments? Patients are required to sign brief consent descriptions or verbal descriptions, even though the complete description is not provided by the doctor's office and the front desk personnel don't know or can't provide detail on what each of these statements contain. You know, think about how much in modern life We sign either electronic forms or paper forms that the people wanting them signed have no idea what it is they're having us sign. We have no idea what we're signing, and we're signing that we understand and agree to the terms included. Medicine is a real problem in this area because medicine is so poorly run in the United States from the administrative side that, I mean, you'd ask, they're not going to know, obviously. But even if they did know, what are you going to do? Because some lawyer wrote this garbage, and then you're not going to be treated or seen if you don't sign the garbage. And then what are they going to do with the garbage anyway? So when I'm given those forms that I'm consenting at a doctor's office, I sign them knowing no one's ever even going to look at them. But if you want to do something clever, you know what I'm going to say, don't you? No. Sign the name of your favorite musician or favorite president or whatever. We are going to get some Clark stinks about this. Oh, that's okay. You just sign it and uh, whatever it is. You big Abraham Lincoln fan? Just sign Abraham Lincoln on him. Nobody's ever going to look. Nobody's ever going to see it. And nobody's ever going to care. I promise. We're going to move on from this one because I know we'll revisit it. And Clark stinks. Jim in Ohio. I've frozen our 12-year-old daughter's credit recently following the guide on Clark.com. It was a little bit of legwork compared to ours, but it gave me peace of mind. Now I've added her to one of our credit cards as an authorized user to start to build her credit. She's not getting the card. I was surprised that I didn't need to unfreeze her credit to add her, and I didn't even need her social security number to do so. This was for a Chase card. So here's my dilemma. I monitor the credit and scores of me and my wife through Credit Karma. Unfortunately, they don't allow accounts to be created for minors. Is there an easy way to be able to keep an eye on her credit and even her credit score without the need to write into the bureaus periodically to do so? You're fine. You know, Jim, you've already done uh, more than 99.999% of parents are ever going to do, which is go through the hassle of setting up a minor child's credit freeze. Uh, completely different than setting up one as an adult that's easy breezy, takes you just a couple minutes. With a minor child, you got to send all this documentation. You have to prove that you have a legal right to be 
doing so for that child and all that. And the whole purpose of this is to prevent minor identity theft, which is a big problem, minor child identity theft. So one thing that strikes me from what you said, you're not getting the benefit for your 12-year-old daughter if you did not supply her social security number on that authorized user application. The whole reason to do it is for her to have an already established solid credit identity as she moves later in her teenage years and towards adulthood. So if Chase did not require the social security number, you still want to supply it for your daughter or else you're not getting the benefit you're trying to accomplish. Chris in Ohio says, Clark, how do you know when you purchase something online if there will be a credit card foreign transaction fee associated with it? I used my Fidelity Investments credit card to purchase a language learning program only to find myself billed with a foreign transaction fee. Had I known it was a foreign transaction, I would have used another card without the fee. So Chris, this is a rare situation where somebody gets burned. When you buy something online, there's the remote possibility that it will be a foreign vendor and they will clear through a foreign merchant processor. And if your card does have foreign currency junk fees, you'll get hit with them as you were in this case. This is rare enough that it's like uh, getting hit by a meteor, that it's so rare that you just got burned in this unusual case I'm not aware of a way when you're shopping online where you would know that a merchant is doing domestic clear of your purchase. This is just something you'll probably never have. Never. Never is a long time. It would be an extremely unusual thing if this same kind of thing burned you again in the future. Very, very rare. I mean, if you were worried about this happening again or repeatedly, when you're shopping online, you could use a credit card that you know has no foreign currency junk fee. And foreign currency junk fees drive me to distraction. There's basically zero cost for a bank with its credit card operation for processing transactions overseas versus in the United States. And to charge foreign currency junk fees is just a complete, what it is, a junk fee, a ripoff of the customer, a betrayal of a customer's trust, and is just silly and mean. Now, that does it for us today. And in fact, for this week, because we're taking a little spring break through Friday, and we'll be back a week from today. And I hope you have a wonderful upcoming holiday period, whether you celebrate Easter, Passover, or just love spring. Spring.